April 29, 1979 was a banner day for innovators. A man by the name of Larry Morrow made the first official controlled flight in a solar-powered aircraft. The machine took off from Flubub Airport in Riverside, California. It reached an altitude of about 40 feet, flew a distance of one-half mile, and then settled back down to Earth. Larry wants his inventions to allow people to experience the buzz of flight in an aircraft powered by wind and solar electricity. He's a visionary. Born in 1867, Frank Lloyd Wright considered himself a philosopher and an educator of what he called organic architecture. Buildings that worked in harmony both with their environment and their people, challenging the way that we live. He drew his plans to be a balance of interior and exterior design, functionality, and purpose. In a career that spanned more than 70 years, Wright designed over a thousand structures. He was a visionary. In our own unique ways, we're all visionaries. Not that we all hyper-focus on that part of our personalities, but even in the smallest of bits, we are. Humanity has evolved thanks to our inner visions, and that truth is, for good or for bad, pretty incredible. The Oxford Dictionary defines the word visionary as a person with original ideas about what the future will or could be like. So what do you see? Eric Wallner is a visionary who's powered by the sun, art, invention, and thermal winds. Self-taught with quiet focus, he looks for them. To live, to imagine, to fly. It's called EJ Precisely, and our story starts here. I'm Brooke Bechtold, and this is The Humble Brag. Our drive through farmlands, Stowe and I made our way back to southwestern Wisconsin this past spring. Yes, back. My parents lived in this part of the world for many years. A 60-acre trout stream haven tucked into Eden Township with green pastures, neighborly artisans, and gentle farmers. Eric Walner lives a few miles down County Road M. He and his wife Michelle bought their property over 20 years ago. Their house sits at the top of a steep hill, nestled into the perfectly sculpted topography of the Wisconsin Driftless Area, a part of the Midwest that was never touched by glaciers. Eric built this house with his own two hands over a five-year span. 960 square feet, it's two stories. An open-plan bedroom office on the second level, there's a bathroom with a skylight. The first floor is built around a sizable concrete tower with a job that's ingenious. The cozy decor includes a mixture of beautifully framed photographs, including one of the Dalai Lama, and randomly pinned National Geographic maps and legends detailing cultures and nature, some they've seen and some are yet to come. The built-in furniture sits on a warm concrete floor and, oh, the kitchen. It isn't big, there are no flashy appliances, but the views of the greenhouse and the pasture from this butcher block counter, you can smell, hear, see, farm. I started off our conversation by asking him to be my tour guide around their little house on the hill. 
It's a five and three quarter acres, just under six. It's a 500 foot square, which ends up being 5.74 acres. I came up with four different house concepts. And this was one, the one that we're in now, is 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 um, the third or the fourth one. We ended up thinking that it would be the most interesting to live in, and uh, it was the design was loosely inspired, as 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 um, as was another one of one of the designs, by uh, some of Frank Lloyd Wright's Usonian houses. Okay. It was actually inspired by an unbuilt project. Of, of Mr. Wright's. It was beautiful. I recognized right off the bat in seeing, seeing the drawing. Um, I've, I, I have a tome upstairs of all of Wright's um, built projects. But if you go through, um, go to Taliesin and the visitor center there, there's all these other books of all of the houses that he designed that weren't built. And some of his coolest projects, some of his coolest designs are the ones that weren't built. And I saw that plan and, and, and recognized it for what it was. It would lend itself really easily to doing a passive solar design. I could, I could morph Wright's idea of having this, this wall that zigzagged in and out of the building um, to a tower standing inside the building that we've got to act as a huge heat sink for all the solar gain that comes in. Tony Wood and Claudia Luz are that most important and perfectly imperfect friendship complement to Eric's precisely. These two are hilarious. There wasn't a part of my conversation with them that they weren't finishing one another's sentences. They're married. Professionally, they're actors, filmmakers, and documentary producers. Their professional lives are creative, and their wonder dictates and drives their vision. The compliment between Eric and Michelle and Claudia and Tony is magic. I met Eric way before Tony met Eric because he was a friend of an old boyfriend. And when I broke up with the boyfriend, I kept the friend. (laughs) And I'm very happy to say I've known Eric for 30 plus years, since the mid-80s. Okay. Okay. So... I met Claudia and and hence met Eric because she got him as a friend and then he became my friend. Well, the thing about Eric, when you meet Eric, he's not, he, he, he's kind of slow and precise the way he talks and he's very open. And so when you first, I remember when I first met him, I thought I was a little, I kind of put up my guard because I wasn't quite sure about, I never, I knew all these outgoing people who chatter a mile a minute and Eric is not that way. He's very, very thoughtful. So when I was talking to him, I kept like, what's, what's this guy's angle? Yeah. Eric has no angles. He's perfectly round. Yeah. So we saw the, we, we witnessed the whole building of Eric's house. Okay. But that started with the building of the outhouse. Right. Can you start with that? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Eric wanted to, Eric wanted to test his building theories. Okay. But he wanted to start small and he knew that they wanted to have an outhouse. This wasn't going to be any old outhouse. This was going to be a well-designed corner opening view of the cow fields, composted type thing. There's nothing out here except the Airstream trailer they were living out of. Houses were the only form of household bathroom plumbing for centuries. These freestanding structures are typically only large enough for a toilet seat, but there are exceptions to that rule. Indoor plumbing became more standard in urban areas early in the 20th century, but today 
there are still many places that use outhouses. Fun fact time! Moon and star cutouts in some outhouse doors designate male and female. Moons, a symbol for the Roman goddess Luna, are female, and stars, a symbol for the Roman god Apollo, are male. Two-seat outhouses aren't as strange as you might think. The second seat offered a place to set a lantern, but more importantly took into consideration that some derriers can be smaller than others, because you don't want to fall in. In 2017, the remains of a Viking outhouse thought to be thousands of years old was discovered in Denmark. As part of the Work Progress Administration program created by President Roosevelt in 1935, more than two million outhouses that had been designed by the American Red Cross were constructed at a cost of $5 each. These new structures replaced old ones in rural areas with an improved standard for sanitation and cleanliness. And last but not least, the sport of outhouse racing is wildly popular in towns like Trenary, Michigan. And I just remember, and I should have known it knowing Eric. I should have known this. I kept thinking, it's taking forever to build this outhouse. <laughs> 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 knowing in my mind this wasn't going to be any old outhouse. But still I thought, man, this is a lot of work just to go poo. <laughs> <laughs> but what a great... But well, what an experience. And it's really the poop chapel. <laughs> they so call it the poop chapel. It's sort of a good... And I think we also have an image of Eric. He didn't put the walls up. He just had the platform and the seat down, and he was sitting on it, <laughs> testing out the views. And <clears throat> it, The doors opened so, from the corner. Okay. So when you open the doors, it's like half of the place is open. Right. That's kind of nice. And you would see just cows walking up to the the fence and it was quite extraordinary until the neighbors put a road through there just <laughs> now, you, so you now, you're wave, now you just wave to yeah, the neighbors as they the go neighbors. by yes but oh he thought of everything God. like the draft and how the 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 scent or aroma of the poop chapel when rises up and it's, it, it, away. it doesn't stink at all around right. that he put little shelves for books and Great. There's a library well, there's there. a library little shelf and they rotate the books in there and and photo gallery there's a photos right. in there. They're beautiful photos. Right. It was actually somebody came out and did a photo study of it for some design thing. Really? It well, was... and didn't Michael Feldman come out here and interview him? Yes. It's one thing to build a privy that works. It's another thing to build a loo that others find interesting. I mean, come on, it's a toilet. It's a whole other level of Shazam when you build a John that's so striking that people travel to see it let alone include your outdoor throne in their book. Michael Feldman, a beloved American radio personality and the host of NPR's Michael Feldman's What Do You Know, wrote a book called Wisconsin Curiosities, Quirky Characters, Roadside Oddities, and Other Offbeat Stuff, back in 2009. The title's pretty self-explanatory, and the collection of people, places, and things from this great state of Wisconsin is gold. Eric and Michelle's Utopian Poop Chapel celebrity lives on page 192. We have a photo of the Poop Chapel in our show notes. With that project complete and successful in both its design and functionality, Eric was ready to start building their house. To design a solar-heated house, you don't just put lots of windows on the south. The reason why you don't just do that because... If you take a conventional house and just put a whole bank of windows on, along its south face, 
it will quickly overheat. So we have a, a, a four inch thick concrete slab floor here on the ground floor and this uh, um, more than 90,000 pound tower made out of concrete blocks standing inside the building, standing inside our house. So the, the sun comes in on a beautiful day like today and it is absorbed by all of this masonry and then the house kind of keeps itself at a constant temperature? Correct. So 24-7. So, so that in, in let's, say, let's say January mm -hmm. when it's oh, a high of 5 or 10 degrees outside, right. which is probably kind of an average for January. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the cold days are also the clear ones. So in the morning, um, the temperature of the house will, will, be, will maybe get down to about 62 degrees, just the point where we have our thermostat set mm -hmm. to kick on. So if it goes down, if the outside temperature gets below uh, 5 or 10, let's say it goes to 10 below, then the temperature in the house will get to 62 degrees at like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. The, the backup radiant heat will kick in, um, uh, pumping warm water through, through the floor. And then by the time um, the sun comes up at, and becomes effective at maybe 8 o'clock, um, the, the floor is warm and the house is probably about 62 degrees. The sun shines in all day long. And by 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, when the sun is no longer, the solar gain is no longer a factor, the interior temperature of the house will have gone up about 10 degrees tops. So we'll have gone from 62 to 72, and we didn't have to open any of the windows. And all that en energy, all that excess energy, is now stored in the floor and in, and in the tower. So the sun goes down, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, the temperature goes from 72 to 71, 70, and it takes a long time for it to dissipate that heat from the tower into our living space through our insulated walls to the outside. So about 6, 7, 8 o'clock, I'll start a fire in the wood stove. and We'll call it a four or five log fire. So four or five logs about the size of my forearm will be burnt in the wood stove and that'll get us to about 10 o'clock, um, and I'll, I'll shut the stove down. And it, it, it's a, a soapstone stove, so you, you close the draft. The fire is, is almost out anyway. You close the draft, and it'll bleed the stored energy in the stove into the space. You know, talk about a low-carbon footprint. Our, uh, um, we burn about a cord and a order, um, which costs probably about... $250 or so. A season? For a season, for a winter. To heat the house for the winter. And our backup heat source, the floor, only heats the house for about 5% of our heating needs. Eric talks specifically about their carbon footprint, a term used often in today's urgent discussions about climate change. But what does that mean? Simply, it's emissions from a person, place, or thing measured in metric tons of greenhouse gases, which are carbon dioxide, methane, etc. And what are emissions? Well, it's what we eat and how we make things, what we buy, the fuels we use, our building materials, methods of transportation, and other services and activities. Eric and Michelle want to keep their carbon footprint as low as possible, especially for the fossil fuels that they use. That's why the house is designed as it is, they're keenly aware that their actions and consumptions today are going to impact tomorrow. 
So, um, so it took five years and fully the last year was spent making all the furniture, all the cabinets, all the closets, even down to the waste paper baskets, the serving tray and the, and the napkin holder. These were made, the, one of the last things I made for the house was the napkin holders. Eric's attention to detail and purpose allows him to design and build pieces with such care that they're timeless. It's how he processes curiosity that sets him apart from how other people just do fascination. Today, he's building and selling furniture that he designed. These pieces are beautiful, predictably made out of a very high-grade plywood that he special orders from Oregon. He picks out the leather for the cushion by sight, and he set the stitch pattern with the tannery so that each stitch is precise. Hand finished in his workshop over a number of weeks, he loves to make them. We have photos in our show notes. We, when we I first a lot. came out here, remember there were just stakes everywhere, little sticks with a flag, okay. and he was delineating where the walls were. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he was you, doing the elevation and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, and you were not getting right. anything. You you can't look at a blueprint. You can't look at stakes no. on the ground. No. He Tony's like, I don't know what he's building. I have like three-dimensional views. If I look at a blueprint, I have no idea what I'm looking at. I'm yeah. looking at lines. It right. has to be extruded for me to know it. When you're building a house yourself and you're doing it from your own designs and it's your first time, he had to be very sure yeah. of every step he was taking. And you could just see he... You didn't want to distract him. Eric's got this really intense focus, and he's very precise about what... Actually, one of our nicknames for him was EJ Precisely. Because not only was he very precise, but he actually uses the word precisely, which is such a great old antiquated word. He would say, oh, are you going to be going... uh, Oh, you did this, didn't you, Eric? Precisely. Mm. I think he's really proud of this house, and I would be too. I mean, I'm proud of him. I drag Mm. people out here to see the house. Because it's like stepping into Eric's brain. He's got an organic way of doing things. The world has patterns. Mm-hmm. And he finds the patterns in everything, in nature and leaves. You look at his photographs. Mm-hmm. Everything's got this structure and pattern. He sees it mm-hmm. in almost everything. He finds the, the patterns in this chaotic world. Yeah. That's Larry Morrow back in 1979. And here's, here's the plane. In his flight suit, and that's the airplane. On that first flight. In 1979, when Eric was 20, he built his first ultralight. Then he took a job for WLPX 97.3 FM, a Milwaukee-area radio station. Every summer, he'd log about 30 flights soaring over the crowds at Summerfest, Alpine Valley, and the Wisconsin State Fairgrounds, advertising the station. He didn't pull a banner, as that would have changed the aerodynamics. What he did do was fashion the call letters out of adhesive-backed vinyl that he fit to the wings of his black and yellow plane. He fondly recalls seeing the streams of traffic heading up the eye from Chicago to Milwaukee like Field of Dreams. Even before he was done flying, the station had determined that over a million people had seen the WLPX flying machine. At one point, I called it a plane, and then I tried to correct myself. Ultralight, sorry. It's an airplane. There was no time that I was up at 5,000 feet that I thought, oh, this little thing is not an airplane. It's definitely... It's an airplane. It's an airplane. My main interest in in flying was to take off with the plane, uh, power up in the afternoon, um, when 
on a sunny day like today when there's uh, the sun's heat is shining on the fields, sun is heating, heating up, heating up the, 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 the ground, the, the first 10 feet of air near the ground, and that, because it's lighter than the air above it, it would break free and create these thermals. And you see hawks. Everyone has seen hawks going around in circles, yes. and they're not flapping, and they're going up if you watch them long soaring. enough. Soaring. Well, hang gliders... And sailplanes can do that uh, too, and they're about the same performance level as a red-tailed hawk. It's really cool, and time just goes by so quickly. You can you can burn a half an hour coring thermals in no time at all. It just seems like you're all of a sudden. How much time went by? You know, and it's cool because you can you can you can uh, start out in the thermal at 500 feet, shut off your motor and ride the thermal up to the base of the clouds at 5,000 feet. And there you are, flying around in a plane that weighs, that weighs 85 pounds tops that you built yourself in your parents' garage. It was exciting. I remember one time flying over Waterloo, Wisconsin, near Waterloo, there was a field um, that was, uh, um, they, had, they, they had planted uh, mint Okay. And they were harvesting mint, okay. and I was in a thermal in this freshly harvested field, and I could tell when I didn't need the instruments. I could tell when I was in the center of the thermal by the smell of the mint, by the intensity of the smell of the mint. Have you ever taken a blanket out after dark, laid it on the ground, and looked up into the clear night sky? Do you know the timeless stories of the constellations, or have you ever been with someone who can tell them so perfectly? that they come to life? Andromeda, Pegasus, Pleiades, Ursa Major, Capella. At 11, Eric knew all of them. He just wanted to be able to see them more clearly. I think early on I realized he was a different kind of person when he told me the story about making a telescope and he was grinding the glass for the lens. He must have been taught by his mom and or dad that the world is just something worth figuring out, and if you A, B, C, go down the line, you can reverse engineer anything and make it mm-hmm. make it happen. Mm-hmm. So if he doesn't know it, he'll read up on it and then find out, if he's interested enough. He is kind of a renaissance man when you think about it, because we were just talking about astronomy. He can tell you mm. anything about astronomy, and I'm just bowled over by how much he knows about that. He was so interested in astronomy as a kid, he's got the whole dome of the heavens figured out and mm-hmm. knows where everything else, everything is. And he can tell those astrological mm. fables. Yeah. You know, Just like, it's like a bedtime story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. The, the really great gift he has in, that, that runs alongside by side with that is that he puts those <laughs> ideas into action. I'm going to build my house. I'm going to make a telescope at 11. A lot of kids would think, oh, it'd be cool to make a telescope, and then that's it. He keeps going. Travel, astronomy, architecture, photography, those things, when he gets interested, it's more than just mm-hmm. a, pa- a passing interest. It's And he doesn't talk about things freely about, you know, if he's going to do something, then he will talk about it. You know, you and I are just like, oh, we should do this and we should do that. And, oh, we let's got make this a movie idea. about this. Do oh, this and then we, don't, and and we don't do it. And no, they think, oh, we have 100 God. ideas. And Eric's very careful because he doesn't want to talk about something he won't undertake. My, my modus operandi over the years has been that when I wanted to get into something like aviation or delve more into photography, 
um, or I really like astronomy and I'd like, I'd like a really nice large telescope, I would build it. I would learn how, I would, I would get manuals, you know, books that would show you how to do it to see if I was even up to the task. And in the first projects, um, late grade school, early high school, the very first telescope building projects, I was in way over my head. But I thought, well, I knew enough adults and tinkerers and uh, the next door neighbor's uncle, Uncle Jerry, had a machine shop and Mr. Lark next door had a welder in his garage. I knew I could, I would, I was confident that, that if I asked nicely, they would, they would, they would um, graciously weld up something for me. And I knew how to build it then. I built telescopes when I was in, in, in grade school and learned how to grind telescope mirrors, you know, way over my, as I, as, as I did mention before, way over my head. And, and uh, I wished I still had it. You know, that was that was definitely much different. You don't still have the telescope that you made. That specific one? No, I sold it to a guy who wanted to do astrophotography through it. You, th you think you'll build another one? I won't because I I have I have another one upstairs that oh. that I bought. <laughs> that I bought. I, I found one that was just a smoking deal from one of from one of Michelle's clients. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Well, keep building. Yeah. Keep dreaming, keep designing. Exactly. I love it. I'm going to shut this it down. Changes our, changes our lives, building, yeah. building stuff. Imagination is endless. There are over a million things that come from it. Being imaginative means you can make anything. The magic is in the start. I never know where my imagination will take me. My only direction is to be happy. Humble Brag is created and produced in cooperation with Hum Productions. Our web address is humble, H-U-M-M-B-L-E, brag, B-R-A-G-G, dot com. Financial support for the show is generously provided by Nala Hurley and Company, JLB Images, and listeners like you. Thank you to Eric Walner, Tony Wood, and Claudia Luz for being our guests. Thank you to my son, Michael, for writing and reading his poem on imagination at the end of the show. To check out photos of Eric and Michelle, their house, his airplanes, Tony and Claudia, the poop chapel, and his furniture, we have them on our website, and we highly recommend you check them out. A huge thank you to the band Swimmer, who hails all the way from the great city of Burlington, Vermont, for their song, Would Be, in this episode. To hear more from Swimmer or see their tour page, you can find them at SwimmerMusic.com. You can find Eric at EJWaller, W-A-L-L-E-R, dot five nine, at gmail.com. Tony and Claudia can be found at SmokingMonkey.net. And we have information about the Easy Rider planes in our show notes. And our star team. Sound engineering by Third Coast Recording Company. Christine Murdoch for production scouting and editing. Norman Bauer and Lee Bechtold for digital artwork and web design. Billy Morgan for social media. Patricia Brzezowski for communications. Jack Bechtold intern. 
Mike Leonard for post-production assistance and mentoring, and Andrew Sachs for our original music. Subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Radio Public, and SoundCloud. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate it. We'd also love to hear from you, so send us an email or find us on social media. Pitch us ideas about people who you think would be great to have on our show. Maybe it's even you. We'll be back soon with another extraordinary show. Everyone has a story. Share. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.